1: Welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we are back at it in the Gospel of Matthew, working through the 8th chapter, and we will be um, probably finishing out chapter 8 today. We've got two sections left, Jesus calming a storm and then healing two men with demons. So we've got uh, just a handful of verses, 23 through 34, uh, so we should have plenty of time to work through those and discuss what is going on in this little portion of the text. So if you haven't yet, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes in Matthew. Uh, We've done an uh, episode as an introduction, and then we went through and did the genealogy and discussed a little bit about that, and then we've talked about his birth, and we correlated that with uh, the other accounts in the Gospel around the birth of Christ, Uh, And then we've been pretty much working through Matthew with just kind of looking at some other text as we go along and looking at some similarities and some differences between the two. But uh, we are working right now through Matthew chapter 8. And I'd actually just made the decision a little bit ago to preach a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. So we will be going through Matthew 5 through 7 in my church Um, very similar to what I've done here, but again, in more of a sermon construct and um, more, you know, visible application, if you would, for the people in the congregation. Mostly, not necessarily as like a, I don't really care for the word application because I feel like it makes it seem like you have to do something or how, how you apply something. But I want it to really resemble this, notion of law gospel. Like, what is this text telling me? Is this giving me a new law? Is it a new command? Am I forced to obey this or I'm doomed? You know, what is this text doing to me? So that's what we're going to unpack when we go through that. And uh, the other side note is, as I've considered, uh, once I get through kind of the crux, if you would, of my book, um, I should finish chapter three here today. And I've got uh, three more chapters to write. So it's not a long a book, but I think it'll come out to be somewhere between 100 and 150 pages. Pretty short, but it's going to hopefully be detailed enough to take you through this thought process that I have of how to pick up and read your Bible without having to have commentaries and study Bibles and, and all this other uh, literature and things like that surrounding you. Being able to just focus solely on the Bible and what it means. Hopefully this book will be a great tool for you. Um, but I was considering once I get either closer to the finish line with it or after we're done, we will do a series on this show that will kind of guide you through the th- the, the process that, that I, for this book. And I want to kind of unpack some of the thinking and application that I had. So those will be like bonus Tuesday episodes, if you would. I don't know if we're going to, you know, how many episodes we'll do on it. It could be six, could be ten. I don't know, if you know, how detailed I'll get. It's still just kind of in the early thought process of it. So be on the lookout if you're interested in that. And, of course, if you want to follow the journey of the book writing process with me, You can do so on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month or $10 a year. And you will get access to all of the notes and all of the comments and questions and and things that I present to the patrons and look for their, you know, guidance and their advice and um, their input because they mean, you know, quite a bit to me and as well as my congregation and they've had access to some of the writings as well. And so I'm you know, looking forward to wrapping this project, but I have uh, a little bit left to go. Uh, you know, I've actually got some of the more m- thicker parts, if you would, of the study left. Um, the first couple chapters are not real long. And the, the kind of crux, the whole main focus of the book, though, I think will really pick up and, and be the harder to <laughs> work through. So I was able to work through these three chapters in just a few months. In fact, I think it's really, uh, I started at the end of February, and so really just March I've written out about two and a half chapters, uh, and now I'll finish chapter three today after I done get done recording this. So, But uh, just to kind of give you an outline here, chapter four is going to be a focus on what the law is, and how do we as Lutherans understand the law and understand the gospel. So there's going to be kind of two sections in this chapter. One's going to be what the law is and what it's not. And then we will see the law before Sinai, the law after Sinai, the different types of law we'll explore, you know, the Levitical priestly laws and all of those things. Uh, And then we will transition to what is the gospel and what is not the gospel. So we will work through that process. Uh, This is just looking at my early notes. I might actually split these into two chapters and do a chapter on the gospel and a chapter on the law. Just depends on how much... Uh, how many words I write. So it's all based on word count. So, uh, And then chapter four is going to be demonstrating the the law gospel distinction. I'll be pulling from scripture and providing uh, a plethora of examples of how you can come across the passage and some of the harder to read passages and some of the easier to read ones. And so like we'll examine things like Proverbs and Psalms, like how do you handle some of these things? And then look at some of the text from Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and some of the other uh, Writers in the New Testament Paul and Peter And we're going to look at how can we distinguish Law and gospel in this text and if it's not explicitly gospel How can we get to the core and the crux of that And then chapter 5 is going to kind of round out the Lutheran belief system Our confessions and uh, Surroundings of the promises in scripture. So that'll be how we close the book out. So uh, pretty excited for it. I've been really enjoying this process. It's been a lot of uh, interesting, mind-boggling, pro- uh, you know, tedious work, if you would. It's just been a lot of slow-paced. Write a few hundred words, take a mental break, gather my thoughts for the next batch, and then go forward. And I know that I'll be really hammering into it in the next couple of chapters because I'm going to really rely heavily on what scripture is pointing us to in terms of law and gospel so and of course we use the book of concord as our kind of foundation so if you're interested in following along you do so if, uh, otherwise you can wait uh, if i don't have it published then it'll be available as an ebook, and uh, with maybe a small section of printed books i don't know if we'll be able to print too many just because of you know, the cost and all that if I'm self publishing. So, ebook would be the easiest method for me to go. But, uh, you know, those are things that are kind of still up in the air at this point. So, let's dig into the context of our show. We are in Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to begin with the 23rd verse, and we're going to work until the end of chapter 8, and that will be today's show. Jesus calms a storm, this is what Matthew writes, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm and the men marvelled, saying, "What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him?" So we're gonna we're gonna start with this first, and then we'll move into the section on the two demons. But uh, it really is an interesting little clip here. It's just a few verses long, twenty-three through twenty-seven. But we get to see Jesus's, you know, divinity shine brightly in his control over the winds in the sea. They obey him because of his authority. And so we see Christ in his deity demonstrated perfectly for us here that his creation obeys him. That's pretty simple. Uh, there's not much more you can really hammer out on that. It's it's a kind of cut and dry portion of text here. But there's some interesting things, so let's look at it a little bit closer. So they're in this boat. Uh, if we kind of jog over to um, Matthew, or uh, Mark, my apologies, Mark chapter 4, and we look at this windstorm that Mark records. They're currently on the Sea of Galilee, which is about 700 feet below sea level. Uh, Mount Hermon is a 9,200-foot peak, and it sits only 30 miles northeast. And when the westernly winds come off of this mountain, they collide with warmer air over the lake, and then sudden... And violent storms are often produced, and so it's pretty common for uh, things in that you know area to have just a a whole bunch of bad storms. And uh, so it's not uncommon. And really, it's kind of interesting that Jesus is found sleeping, uh, he, and, and he rebukes them because of their of their faith, their little faith. And so the men think they're perishing. And they, you know, they're, they're fearful of the storm because they probably know the devastation um, that is about to take place. And the fact that it's probably one of those things that if they sense a storm brewing, they, they go ahead and get their boats off of the sea because it's going to be pretty dangerous out there. And I would venture to say that in this time period, many people who were caught in these storms probably did not survive. And that was, again, probably common knowledge for his disciples, who by many were fishermen. Now, it just says his disciples. We don't know if there were more than the 12 that had accompanied him. It could have been a you know a little bit more of a crowd. But those who are closest to him are in this boat. They are fearful of their lives. And uh, it's interesting because the... Greek word, uh, syosmos, syosmos, again, I'm not a Greek theologian, so I, I really need to <laughs> take some time, honestly. And, and it's just for myself, personal self-development, and I would love to spend time learning the Greek and Hebrew. I know it, and I, and I have no ability, you know, tr- uh, taking it and breaking the words down and, and, you know, looking at definitions and comparing and contrasting and all that, but to actually read it and understand the words in of themselves would be a tremendous blessing. But really in today's world, it's not that we care less for the original languages because I still absolutely love the Greek and Hebrew. I just cannot pronounce some of the words, and I've made that notion quite often on my show. My tongue just does not work sometimes in that. So anyways, this Greek word can also mean earthquake, so it can be interchanged in that. Uh, in that sense but here they're on the sea and so we know that there are these violent storms and it's interesting that this is a you know there's the contrasting point between this violent storm and the great calm that follows and Matthew Mark uh, both note this and Jesus of course is asleep unaffected by the storm and it's dangerous he just doesn't care he's he knows that he's not going to perish. And he knows that it's not his time yet. It's not the gospel that Jesus died in a boat for you. Uh, Jesus drowned for you. It was that Jesus was nailed to a cross for you. So he knows his time has not yet come. And so he has no worries. He's perfectly okay with going to bed during the storm because he knows that the storm can't kill him. And so he goes down and he goes to sleep. And his disciples are freaking out. And they, they are, you know, Going after him and waking him, saying, "Save us, Lord! We are perishing." And he rebukes him. So it's an interesting thing here. But Jesus did not chide his disciples for disturbing him, but they, but he does so for uh, disturbing themselves with their fears. And so he is more so, you know, a, I don't want to say upset, but he's he's he really chastises them because they've allowed fear to engulf them and they have forgotten who he is and they forgot that he has this power. And so, um, at the very end, they even marvel in verse 27, uh, the dis- you know, over his power, the disciples question here speaks also to you as a reader, inviting you to consider, uh, and confess what we've learned of Jesus. Who is this man? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And, you know, this is kind of one of those interesting verses because, again, this question can cascade through the centuries. We've we've gone through Matthew pretty extensively and have spent quite a bit of time working through each of these sections thus far. And we will finish with chapter 8 today. So we've done eight chapters of Matthew. And this question here at the very end of chapter 8 really stands as the you know the pendulum for the modern church what sort of man is this who is this Jesus is this the one who will truly die for our sins and rose from the grave as we just celebrated this past week in Easter Uh, is this the man who's the the Messiah the son of God or as other religions classify him is he merely just a prophet and so these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves do we truly believe this and I finished that on my Easter sermon. I, I finished with this question. I preached uh, through Friday to Sunday, like the time that Christ was in the grave. What did he do? Where did he go? What was accomplished? Because we talk about every Easter, you know, he is risen and the congregation responds. "He is risen indeed. And we spend a, a, a large assortment amount of time talking about, you know, Christ rising from the grave and all of these great things. And it's a wonderful service. But we sometimes forget all those little details that go into the things that Christ did while in the grave. And what did he actually accomplish? And so at the very end of the sermon, I finished with this question. The only thing I can ask you now is, do you believe this? Because that's what faith is, belief. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And here we have a wonderful example of it. He goes out and he rebukes the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Everything obeys him because he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the one who created these, you know, the, this atmosphere, the clouds and the storms and the world. He created it all with his voice. And so this is a, a great little section to really allow us to just kind of answer this question for ourselves. What sort of man is this? Who is this Jesus? What we've learned so far in the gospel of Matthew, how does that apply to this passage. How does that apply to us personally? So let's move on here. Uh, in uh, verse 28, Jesus is going to heal two demons. So when they come to the other side, to the country of Gadarenus, two demon-possessed men met, went to meet him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one would, could pass by. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you not come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs were feeding off at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, "If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs." And he said to them, "Go." And they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, or they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, They begged him to leave their region. So we have a lot here to unpack. Why did they ask him to leave? Why did these demons want to go into these pigs and then drown the pigs? Uh, What is all the things happening here in this text? Well, first we know that the storm has now calmed and they have arrived safely at their destination. They've gone to the other side, the country of uh, Gadarenus uh, Gadara was southeast of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory. And if you have a study Bible, there's probably going to be a map there showing you in, uh, showing you that location. Uh, this is also noted in the Gospel of Mark in the fifth chapter when it talks about the demon-possessed men. And so if we want to you know, examine that, well, let's jump over to Mark chapter 5, verse 1 here. Uh, And the demon-possessed men here, um, let's actually go back to the first verse and read through uh, kind of the the clip note here on the first 20. These events do not take place within the city proper, but in the outlying regions near the seashore. Mark records three episodes in which Jesus casts out unclean or demonic spirits, and this is throughout the gospel. This is first in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 5 and Mark 9:14 through 29. Each account exhibits a similar structure, the opening conflict, the exorcism, and finally dismay and praise. Uh, so we know where they're at. We know that these men were in the tombs in this kind of, you know, region, if you would, of uh, that is outside of the city limits because nobody wants to interact with them. They they're violent. It tells us that, that they uh, were so fierce that no one could pass by them. So these two violent men confronted Jesus and blocked his way. Uh, Another word for the tombs uh, would also be caves uh, because they could have buried the dead in uh, the sides of a mountain or in the side of a cliff or a big hill. And so they were probably uh, dug out uh, little caverns and they would have little placements for uh, the bodies to go. So tombs or caves interchangeable in this context here. Uh, even Gentiles would have been repelled by the people living among the remains of the dead. So this is kind of a grotesque uh, environment. And we know that the Jews uh, frowned down upon it. And that's indicated in First Kings 2 and Genesis 23. And the Gentiles even had no desire to live among the dead. And so they really had a low view of the people who dwelt amongst the dead. And so uh, generally these individuals would have been outcasted from their society. Uh, and in this case, they're demon-possessed. In other cases, they could have had maybe uh, leprosy or some other disease that was highly contagious uh, And to to the extent that they had to be sent out from the city. So as he comes along, behold... This is repeated again in verse 32 and 34. Uh, the son of God, um, Mark makes this note on the first um, m- uh, time he deals with a demon in Mark chapter 1. So the demon confronts Jesus and he's asking, what would you have to do with us? So either more than one demon possessed of that man in Mark, uh, as in the uh, same instance here that we're talking about in uh, five nine, because in Mark and in Matthew, both of them record that these are demon possessed, and they go into a herd of pigs, and so there had to have been more. In, in verse thirty one of Matthew, it says, "And the demons begged him." So there's two men; could have been a plethora of demons; could have been the legion of demons. You know, we just know that there was more than one uh, in this in this little section here. The demons expect only punishment from Jesus, the Holy One of God, a title similar to the Son of God. Uh, In the ancient world, people believed that that knowing the real name of a divine being gave one control over that deity. This demon knew Jesus' true identity and yet could not overcome him. Through the demons often use messianic titles for Jesus, the disciples failed to do so until much later, as mark records in the 8th chapter their slowness to recognize jesus's messianic status is a major theme throughout the gospel of mark so it's pretty common that these demons <clears throat> would address jesus in this fashion in this you know using a messianic title oh son of god what have you to do with us have you come here to torment us before the time Uh, That before the times and referencing to the final judgment, that is when Jesus will, um, you know, judge the world and the goats and the sheep will be into two lines. But it basically it's a better way of saying it, uh, the believers and the non-believers. So the non-believers will then go into the pit of fire where the demons and, and Satan will then be cast into as well. But Jesus does not answer their questions that he's confronted. Jesus just kind of brushes them aside. And then de- demons go on to beg him saying, if you cast us out then send us into that herd of pigs. And Jesus simply responds with go. And so the unclean spirits had sought refuge in unclean animals. Cause in the Jewish, const- in the Jewish construct here, pigs were unclean animals. And so they couldn't eat them. They don't like to eat them. Uh, they, they, don't eat the crispy delicious yummy bacon. Uh in fact I've got um a pork shoulder in my freezer for pulled pork in a couple of weeks and I've got uh uh pork ribs, baby back ribs in my fridge defrosting so we're going to smoke some ribs here later this week. I like pork um, but it is an un- in, in the Jewish mind it's an unclean animal so the unclean spirits uh are seeking refuge in what they are what they know best and that's the unclean animals and so uh, Jesus tells him, go, this single word, Jesus is able to cast out demons. Now, I, there's, there's a, demonology is a fascinating topic to me because we just don't have, a, we don't know a lot. And what we do know, it's often, you know, kind of built off of what the Catholic Church has done over the centuries in terms of demonology. And so we, we know through scripture that there are some demons that are named and there's some beliefs around what names of demons are. And kind of going back to that title, if you know the name of the demon, you have power over it. Now, the demons think that they might be able to use that leverage with the Son of God, but they don't have any power over Christ. And Christ is the one who's in the ultimate control and has the ultimate authority over them. So demonology is a fascinating topic. In fact, uh, I believe there's a new movie with Russell Crowe coming out. And it's it's a I'd venture to say it's a horror movie, Um, but it's I think it's called The Exorcist. I'm not entirely sure if that's the right title. I saw a preview for it the other day, Uh, but it's a you know he's a Roman Catholic uh, demonologist and he goes and does these exorcisms, and it's a pretty dark looking movie. But see what I've uncovered in my you know very very limited amount of time searching this topic, demonology. And exorcisms are an extraordinarily dark incident because, one, we're not Jesus, so we just don't have the authority to say, go, and that demon will leave. The demons were, you know, at one point created as angels who have since fallen. And you, you can argue, well, you know, are they truly fallen angels or are they, you know, a creation of Satan? Well, Satan doesn't have the power to create anything. Um, So the general consensus is that these are fallen angels. And so these were created specifically by God himself before the creation of time. But the demons, you know, have this notion that mankind is below them. uh, And even still, Paul makes the equivalent that we've been created just a little bit higher than the angels because we have the ability to, uh, re, you know, accept or reject God. We are not created as this, you know, being of roboticness, if you would, as the Calvinists like to point to. We we have no confines, whereas the angels were created to worship God exclusively, and some of them fell out of it because of pride, and, and you know, we have that falling away, and that's a whole another topic, but this whole notion of demonology can be quite dark, and the exorcisms can be quite um, grotesque. And there are, you know, there's, there's documented cases. This is not something that we should shun away as believers because these, there are documented cases of people being possessed by demons. And we, I quite truthfully, I see it happening more and more in the world right now. You just get on social media and you see all these people just losing their minds and going berserk and and screaming and clawing and, and just, you know, it's just a—it's an obscure scene to watch these people behave in certain manners. Are they all demon possessed? Probably not. They, they could be demon influenced, but um, I certainly feel like there's a heightened uh, impact around demons afflicting people in today's world. And I would even be venture—I'd even venture to say that many people uh, who are in power around the world have the influence of some sort of demonic being, whether it's a possession or the, you know, um, kind of ritual basis, if you would, but there's some sort of influence into a lot of these world leaders. And like I said, it doesn't take much for us to just turn on social media and catch a glimpse of it because their entire prerogative is to stand against the word of God. It, and the biggest attack right now is on this is on the is on the marriage. It's on the home. It's on the family. It's on, you know, people who are husband and wife and have children. That's the attack right now that Satan is taking to the church. And this, you know, big episode that unfolded a couple of days ago in California where uh, TPUSA, Turning Point USA, their chapter, there hosted. I forget her name, but she was uh, the uh, Olymp- she was the ncaa swimmer that plays second to a biological male and she goes to do this uh speech on uh, women's sports and she's met with just complete opposition all of these transvestites and all these transgender people are protesting her screaming at her and some have even hit her and um and it's caused the police to 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 not do anything. The school hasn't done anything. It's create, created this big old uh, problem. And this is the society we currently live in because these people are, are running the show. The, the the inmates are running the asylum. And I wouldn't be shocked if the demonic possession level, if, like if you could categorize or rate it, uh, hasn't spiked in the last 10 or 15 years. It almost feels like we have just opened the doors to hell and allowed all of this to happen but then to the other end of it we can talk a little bit more on eschatology and and kind of side in the notion that these things will take place in such a more rapid moment as the days uh, the great day of the lord draws closer so we could see a little bit of a heightened notion to this because the days are drawing to an end for these demons and so but for Jesus to come in and just simply say, go, this is the ultimate authority. Uh, and this really contrasts the complicated formulas empowered by the human exorcists. Uh, you know, there's there's a whole process. If you get into, like, demonology and you read through, like, some of the Catholic works, uh, you'll see that there's a process in, a, in, a, in this calculated formula that must be presented. And it generally deals with having crucifixions and holy water and... Uh, you know, and obviously your Bible, and then probably uh, an exorcist book of sorts. And it will go in, the priest will go in and, and attempt to bless the room and try and bless the person. And then in many cases, they will try to address the demon specifically and cast them out using, you know, the word of God and using the authority of Jesus. And so there's a whole lot that can be said on this. It's kind of, like I said, it's an interesting topic. There's, um, there's a f- only a handful of books that I've really come across, uh, that are readily available. And, and in fact, it's something that I would like to spend a little bit more time studying in my time as a preacher, because this is what we stand against. These are the forces of evil. These are, these are the demonic entities that we fight on a daily basis in the church. And, here we have these fierce men who are possessed by demons. They beg Christ to be uh, cast away and they go into these pigs and then the pigs uh, plunge into a watery tomb. Now, it's not going to kill the demons. Uh, the demons will just find something else to um, to corrupt and possess, but these are uh, th- this is the result essentially of them being thrown off the cliff here. They're uh, plunged into the sea and they drown in the water. And then the herdsmen... Uh, have seen this. They go into the city. You Remember, we're out in the countryside. They go in, they tell everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Uh, And behold, the city comes out to meet Jesus, and they beg him to leave. The demons had done the same thing, going back to verse 31. And the demons are begging him, and now these people are begging him to leave their region. The presence was so powerful, an exorcist frightened these superstitious Gentiles. They did not even begin to thank or praise him for mercifully, mercifully healing these two demon-possessed men. They were so frightened of it because, again, they have this, you know, superstition of multiple gods or you know all of these different things like that, and so the unknown is frightful to them. Uh, demons are especially active in opposing the ministry of Jesus. They uh, cannot. Uh, They cannot come against God's Son, who reportedly shows his authority over them, even though they attempt it. Um, But we cannot reject the responsibility that demon possession causes even afflictions today. However, baptized children of God do not need to fear demonic possession, for our Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us from all sin, from death, and from the power of the devil. As Luther records in his small catechism, baptism into Christ ensures that his victory is our victory. And that is the truth. If you are a Christian, you do not need to fear demonic possession. However, I would never uh, encourage anybody to meddle in any sort of demonic activity. I would never encourage anybody to, um, to, to study unless you have a specific purpose. It is a topic that is dark and can, can lead people down a very dangerous road. And, and I am even hesitant myself to study further. Simply because of the results that could come from it, but in time, I pray that I get to understand this battle a little bit more, and be able to um, kind of understand it in a greater scope. But again, be cautious and but be educated, so that those are those are the two things I can give you: be cautious and be educated on the topic. Understand that demons still afflict people today, but as a Christian, as a Bible believing, Christ clinging to. Demons have no no power over you. They can whisper in your ear just as they did to Eve, but they have no power over you, and you stand on the authority of Jesus Christ. So cling to that. That is your power. And that's going to wrap today's episode as well as wrap chapter 8 in the Gospel of Matthew. So thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys have a great week. It is Friday when this episode airs, so get to church on Sunday and partake in the glorious divine services. Until next week, God bless, and we'll see you all later.